enjoy having them in service with us because we think that they learn from watching us worship um, and, and being a part of the family, uh, the, the larger body of Christ, the larger family of Christ, singing together, and God loves to hear their voice too. So um, we like to keep them in here so that they can be at least with us for a little while. Uh, a couple things real fast. I love that song, that Maverick City song that we sang. If you've ever watched or if you have time to watch the music video, um, it's super cool because it's just a group of worshipers together in like a basement uh, with a couple instruments singing together, and it's super powerful. Um, it's powerful because it welcomes in the spirit in a way that's not showy or flashy. It's just a, hey, here I am. God, I want to meet with you. Um, and so watch the video if you, if you have time because uh, I know it, it, it stirred things up within me. Even as I'm talking about it, it stirs things up in me uh, where that's the desire of my heart is that we would come in here on Sunday morning and worship in spirit and truth um, and truly just give him our everything. Um, I did feel like I wanted to give a shout out to this row right here. Can you find people? Um, as we were worshiping, I, I knew that uh, you guys had been praying for me and for our congregation, and that that's one of your guys' spiritual gifts that you guys do is pray, and uh, I think that's a huge strength for our church, so um, I thank you guys. Um, and I say that in particular today because I'm nervous. <laughs> I'm nervous about the message this morning, um, and the reason why I'm nervous is because I know it's going to bring tension, and some of you might not like me <laughs> afterward, and that's hard for me. Um, it's hard for me because I'm a people pleaser at times. I confess that, and I repent of that, um, and I have to lean back into uh, the fact that I am reading from Scripture, and uh, I'm developing a studied opinion on my interpretation of what this scripture is saying. I'm trying to deliver to you the most accurate truth that I can, but even in my flesh, I know that sometimes um, I might be wrong. I might be wrong. Uh, today is one of those messages where I'm like, man, I really hope I'm right, um, and I really hope that uh, the, the message that's given this morning is one that um, is, is rooted in truth um, and stirs up something in you to maybe explore those truths a little bit deeper on your own as well. And if I'm wrong, I want to challenge you to come and tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> Please, come and tell me I'm wrong. Um, because you can teach me, and we can edify each other, uh, just like the verse that says, iron sharpens iron. Um, I know that I am a student just as much as I am a teacher. And so, um, we, are, we are learning together uh, as I get to be the, kind of the primary teacher through this series. Um, I want to learn from you guys as well, okay? And this, ver or this, this section of verses this morning may cause some tension. <laughs> um, tension because it, it offers a new way of thinking for myself um, that challenged me, challenged me in a lot of ways. And I think back through my time in church and some of the things uh, talked about in here that I'll address, I've seen people leave the church over because the church disagreed with them or people in the church 
disagreed with them or, or there was a, um, a very strong conviction, a very strong passionate belief that what I believe in this area or this subject is true and if, if you don't believe in this same way that I do, then I'm out of here. I've seen it. And I think that's, that's maybe what causes the fear inside of me is that if uh, it becomes too radical or too um, diverse from your way of thinking that some of you may just say, oh, that's enough, I'm done, and I'm out of here. Um, let me challenge you before I even get into it to uh, not let it be something that divides us but something that brings us together. Not a, and, and I say that um, with confidence because I know that it's coming from the Word of God. And from the Word of God, this is truth. And so um, we know that the truth is right here, and it's given to us. Even if I may have a passionate belief in this direction, and you have one in a completely opposite direction, somehow we can come together through the edification of each other uh, through the study of the Scripture. So let's get into it. Um, if you've been with us, we're going through Ephesians, and it's, the series is entitled Masterpiece. Uh, as we first looked at God being the master and we being the, the pieces, the, and him being the master of the broken pieces. Okay. Uh, real quickly before we get into it, if you have any remaining puzzle pieces, Sam is doing awesome. Sam and Jonathan back there, they're putting together the puzzle. Okay. I tasked him with the challenge of trying to get it together before the end of service so that we can see the masterpiece of all of our little broken pieces. Um, by the way that he's looking at me, I don't know if that's going to happen. <coughs> it's a laser-cut version of a heart, and it's a difficult puzzle, so good luck, Sam. Praying for you, buddy. Okay. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, if you are new to the Bible, I like to remember this section of epistles, which are letters Go eat popcorn, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Okay, we are in the eat part, my favorite part. Okay, uh, eat popcorn. Ephesians is the, the book. Um, and we have Paul. And I can't think of a more timely message or a more prophetic or anchoring book for what is happening in our church and in our culture in America today. Paul is the master theologian, and he is, uh, as I said last week, writing this from a prison cell in Ephesus, and you kind of get this sense that as Paul is writing this letter, he's not just writing, but he's worshiping. And the letter is meant to be uh, challenging, and it's meant to be edifying, and it's meant to take you into deep theology, and I, I think in some of the most painful and dark places in our life is when God reveals himself the brightest. Right? When we're struggling, we are more dependent on God because we need him, and we recognize our need for Jesus. And I think Paul is in this place where he is in prison, and he is finding absolute joy in his position, and he writes uh, this letter um, from that dark moment. And he begins to throw down this, this practical message in the first three chapters on the ad identity, who we are, the identity of the church in Ephesus, and it can be extended to, to us 
today. And then in the second three chapters, um, he says, now this is how you live it out. He gives us the orthodoxy, and then he gives us the orthopraxy, the, the theology in how we should believe, or in what we should believe, and, and what that looks like, and why. And then he says, this is how, and what that should look like, and, and where, and when, and, and how um, the church should look as it practically uh, acts it out. So I'm convinced uh, that we live in uh, the day or a day in the church where there is so much division and there's little nuances in every single little denomination as we call them. But in the root of the word denomination is the word, the term division. And we can see it throughout all of America. We're um, probably one of the most divided times the church has ever seen. And tensions, there's tension upon tension that these tensions and these divisions, they re- require us as a church to not only know what we believe, but how we should believe it as well. Your theology matters, but how we theology matters even more. Right, we talked about this the other night. We can, we can know all the things about the Bible, memorize all the scriptures, but if our life doesn't reflect it, what good is it? So here's Paul in Ephesians And he's presenting this, uh, what Jesus has done, and he says, now this is how you live it out in the spirit of Jesus. Did you know it's possible to live live out the way of Jesus without the spirit of Jesus? I I actually, I know um, one of my coworkers, he, he lives out the way of Jesus in a lot of ways, but he claims to be an atheist. He loves the children that we work with, and he's kind, and you know, he goes and he extends himself out there to make sure that students that are in need, that need resources, that they get them. And I'm like, wow, that is very Christ-like. But in his testimony, he denies Jesus in his existence. So followers of Jesus, we, we do it all the time, and I, I believe I referred to it last week as a genuine fake. Right? We don't want to be genuine fakes. So we need, we need the good theology we need the good identity, but we also need to know how to live it out in a way that actually forms and transforms the world around us. So taking what we know and putting it into practice and how we church matters. How we act as a church matters. And I'm not talking about just this Sunday morning, even though we are throwing up some ideas uh, for how we can do this even a little bit better on Sunday mornings, but it's more about what we do outside of this time, sitting at the brewery together, uh, talking and having a conversation over a beer, uh, having dinner at my house or, or at a friend's house or coming over and having conversations about what Jesus is doing in our life. Like that is more important, how church, church matters and how we're doing church in our everyday life really does matter. So what does it look like to be the church? How does church look, right, look like? And I mean, it is kind of funny. If you look around the room, right, how he's brought us all together. And some of you might have even come in this morning going, how in the heck did I get here? Right? If I put two people at random in this room, how many of you on a, on a Wednesday afternoon would say, hey, let's go get coffee? I think we're actually better than most in this area where we do try to make that happen. But even still... We should be doing it more, right? 
How am I a part of this? And, and, and I know that only God could bring us together. And what brings us together, which I'll get to in, in a little bit, is Jesus. And when we start to dissect our lives and look at all the little things that we believe about our lives, I can guarantee you that if I sat one-on-one in a conversation with you, you and I are going to differ politically, like religiously, theologically, physically, the way that we spend our time. I guarantee you we can find many, many differences that could separate us. But in chapter 1, okay, Paul presents this beautiful picture of our identity that we've been chosen, that we've been adopted. Okay? We've been given a seat at the table with Jesus. And in, in the verse 10, it's the pivotal verse, he calls us God's masterpiece. And he says, when we come together with all of our differences, all of our cultural divides and distinctions and all those things, and we put them all together, as we'll see when Sam is done there, thank you, buddy, that we're not all the same. Some of us have bright, beautiful pieces in that puzzle. Some of us wrote simple scripture words. Some of us drew contour lines on there. Some of us had beautiful depictions of mountains and trees and the cross. I didn't give you very much direction on those puzzle pieces for a reason. For a reason. I wanted them to be uniquely different. I wanted you to use your creative imagination. I wanted you to depict, really, whatever, as simple or as complex as it may be, a a little piece of who you are. Because that's really what the church is. We're bringing all these little pieces together. And the key word that, that he gives us in this verse 10 is we. We are God's masterpiece. In, in the Lord's Prayer, he says, our Father who art in heaven. It's plural. It's, it's communal. Everything that Paul presents is communal. He only uses the term me or I one time is when he first comes to know Jesus. And then he uses we or our 53 times. And I think there's something to that. I I think in our prideful Christian American perception of relationship with Jesus, we've missed this point drastically And we've said it's all about me and God. Right? And when we do that, we flip the entire script of the Bible and put ourselves in the middle. It's not about me. That's so egotistical to think that this relationship between me and God is simply between me and God. It starts there. You've got to be introduced to him and come to know him, but once you do, you become a part of the communal body of the church. We are God's masterpiece. We are the church. We together become that beautiful depiction. The ecclesia is what he calls it in the Greek. The called out ones. We stand apart from the world because we are so beautiful together that the world looks at it and says, wow, wow, God is beautiful. And individually, you're not a masterpiece. (laughs) You're something else. I don't even know what it is. 
You're an isolated piece of the puzzle, which, yeah, some of them are, are good looking, but the beauty comes in the connected pieces. And I don't know if you've ever tried to complete a puzzle, but that joy when you put the last piece in, right? And your kids want to come in. Can I put the last piece in? No. You didn't, you didn't do any of this puzzle. Right, babe? All the time. That's my puzzle piece. And the joy of seeing a completed puzzle where all the pieces are put together. Like, <laughs> you and Jesus is not the point of the story today. The point is that we are becoming together to form the masterpiece. And somehow God calls us to do this together. God calls us to do this together. So one of my prayers for this series is that God would pierce through our isolated, proud, Western Christianity because coming into this with our Father changes everything. It changes everything. He is our Father. Because that means that when I look around this room, you're my sister. And you're my brother. My sister, my brother, sister. I got a room full of brothers and sisters in here. It makes us a family, right? Because we have the same father. I read this article called The Evangelical... Oh, I forgot to be changing my slides. I got so wrapped up in this, okay? Actually, this is my first one, so good. I didn't miss it. Where did my clicker go? Okay. Did I leave it somewhere? Man. Oh, it's in my pocket. There it is. Okay. The evangelical church is breaking apart. Christians must reclaim Jesus from this church. Okay? And it has some uh, quotes in here from a couple different theologians that are like, oh, that was good. i got to share this. Okay. James Ernest, he's the vice president and editor-in-chief at Erdman's, which is a publisher of religious books. I read some of his. Um, what we're seeing, and this is his quote, what we're seeing is massive discipleship failure caused by massive catechesis failure. Basically, that means the evangelical church in the U.S. over the last five decades has failed to form its adherence into disciples. So there was a great hollowness. All that was needed to cause the implosion that we have seen was a sufficiently provocative stimulus, and that stimulus came. What was that stimulus? I believe COVID kind of hyper-activated this hollowness that we've seen in the church for decades. Right, where we, we had given, we've given permission to stay, uh, uh, the church, the body, to stay home and not participate in the gathering of believers. And I'm not saying that uh, online worship can't be used to experience fellowship and gathering. It can be. But this definitely heightened the, the uh, lack of discipleship being seen. Another guy, Alan Jacobs, I didn't put his quote up there, but he talks about how there is cultural catechesis that we experience nowadays through Facebook and Twitter and Instagram that influences us, influences us more so than what we get in church because we're only in church for, what, half an hour to an hour a day hearing about this Jesus stuff, but then we're infiltrated by the culture of the world uh, every moment of every day of our life. So who wins? An hour on Sunday or 200 hours throughout the week? It doesn't even matter if you believe it or not. Um, it says this is true of both the Christian left and the Christian right, Jacob said. People come to believe what they are most thoroughly and intensely, intensively catechized to believe. And that catechesis comes not from the churches, but from the media they consume, or rather the media that consume them. 
The churches have barely better than a snowball's chance in hell of shaping most people's lives. I'm not here to just bash on social media or things like that. I mean, I use it as well. But we've got to make sure that Jesus is winning. That the catechesis, the the study, the theology, the uh, time that you spend in prayer and worship of Jesus is outpacing and winning the battle between what you are gaining and, and being consumed by in the media. So back to our uh, verse in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 is where I'm going to pick up. I left off at 10 last week. It says, Therefore remember, and I'm reading from the NIV, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So here Paul is speaking to these followers of Jesus who have found themselves sitting in house churches face to face with Jews who now believe in Jesus. And he's saying, remember that you Gentiles were once outsiders. You were not allowed to enter into the temple. In fact, you weren't even allowed to get close. And what the Jews had done throughout this time, Paul being one of them, so he's speaking about this from his expertise, he said the Jews had taken their elitism as spiritual authority, as the Pharisees and Sadducees, to be the ones in power to separate themselves from everybody else. Right? They, they said, we are the spiritually elite. And instead of taking their power to serve others, they took their power to usurp others. <clears throat> and Paul says, you guys, you have the power. You Jews, you guys are in power. And now what Jesus has done for us, you are allowed to sit face to face with the Gentiles as equals. You guys are adopted into the family of God. You're sitting next to your brother and your sister. However, the spiritually elite have chosen to ostracize or segregate or separate themselves from anybody who has thought differently than them. I'm sorry, but this is painfully familiar. It's achingly familiar as we look at the church today. As we look at what the power of Christianity since Constantinople, since Constantine had, had taken the power and, and made us into a, or the world into sort of a, a Christian government, we have seen this type of spiritual elitism from Christians that have said, we, we have the spiritual authority and we've separated from the people of the world or, or even others who might think just slightly differently than us, even if Jesus is at the center of who we are. And we're struggling to profoundly love each other. We've used our spirituality, using our privilege of being God's people, not to be love, but to be right. And that's our problem, is uh, we, we fight. We fight over certain minute theological discussions in order to prove our point and to be right. And in doing that, we stop acting in love, as if God needs us to defend our Christian borders. 
as if he needs us to come in and stand on a pedestal of our rightness, as if we're right and you're wrong, fighting against the world, fighting against each other with our opinions, and rather than humbling ourselves to be love, we're elevating this this desire to be right somehow to protect God and take back America for Jesus. I'm sorry, that term might be triggering to some, but unfortunately, that's what we've done, as if we need to take something back for him. And Paul smashes this directly, and he says, taking that, their platform, which was meant to be a platform to love, to be a people of love, he uses Jesus as this example of sacrificial love, as he writes in his next letter in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. He says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Is this what our churches look like today? Is this what we look like? today. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has this quote that says, we are not here to fight for space in and with the world. We are here to lay our lives down so that the world might meet the God who has reconciled the world to himself. He is our suffering servant, and our example of service comes through him laying down his life. Sometimes we <laughs> we tend to go like, oh yeah, um, I do this too, and I'm, I'm at fault. I go, yeah, I, I told my, my students about um, Jesus today, but they laughed at me. I'm so persecuted. I posted something on Instagram, and uh, there were some rude comments, and nobody liked it. The persecution is unbearable. Our persecution is laughable. It's laughable. We don't even know what persecution is. This book confronts and calls us out, calls the church out to this outrageous posture in Christ Jesus that we should be suffering for Jesus in such a way, in such a way that God is glorified beyond our imagination. And I don't want to discount your bravery in it, proclaiming Jesus, but I want you to know that we haven't seen persecution in America. But it's coming. And it'll be here. We are infants to this division. We are infants to this persecution. But here's the beautiful thing. In verse 14, he says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, Jews and Gentiles, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. To the Jews in this time, if you were not a Jew, you were a Gentile or a half-human. 
They would say things like, the Gentiles are only good for fueling the fires of hell. That's what they claimed. In fact, it was illegal for a Jew to help the Gentiles with childhood, lest you would help bring another Gentile into the world. How dare you? And if a Gentile returned from a trip, he had to take like a prophetic moment outside of the city and stop and shake the dust off of his feet so that no Gentile dirt would be brought into the city. The hatred and the animosity was insane. They did not get along. They were culturally completely different. They were from different planets, Jews and Gentiles. So now you have these Jews and Gentiles, and they find themselves face-to-face in these house churches across the empire. And Paul writes this letter after centuries of this hostility that's been happening, him being one of them who even killed Stephen. He was there at the the martyrdom of Stephen, and, and he threw rocks. He persecuted Christians, and he says, Now, Somehow, Jesus, through his body on the cross, has brought peace to the Jews and the Gentiles. Through his body, Jesus united Jews and Gentiles into one new humanity. And this isn't Jesus changing the cultural traditions of the Jews or, or changing who Gentiles are. They still carry all of their cultural background with them. This is Jesus taking two groups coming from different places with different beliefs, who couldn't be more uniquely different, and he makes them one new humanity, one new race, one new people group. (laughs) In our room, it's taking the passion of Prague, right? My brother in the back, and putting him in the room with uh, the gentleness of Steve, right? Or, and and then uh, all of us, uh, black, white, Indian, Asian, French, Mexican, whatever, the spiritual authority of of different people in this this powerful front row right here, gathering together with our youth, taking communion together, and the youth of our our children, the energy of them, and the wisdom of of Jonathan, and and the passion, and, and the love, and all of our unique giftings, and styles, and backgrounds, and saying, you are God's masterpiece. And you commune at the same table. When Paul says that through his body broken on the cross, Jews and Gentiles are now one new humanity in Jesus, a new race. Now there's two Greek words for this. Okay. Two Greek words. Where did I go here? Oh, I didn't add it. I'm just going to talk about it real quick. Okay. Two Greek words. He says um, there's new and then there's new. There's the Greek word neos, which means like new in time. And then there's the Greek, Greek word kainos, which means new in essence. The word that he uses here is kainos. So this is a type of culture um, that is absolutely and completely new. It is a new people in Jesus. In this, uh, this was the temple back in the day. Right? And for the, Jew, or for the Gentiles, they had this court right in here. They were allowed to go in here. And up here, they had this court up here. These, this is the court of the Gentiles. In between the court of the Gentiles and the holy place, or the bronze altar, is this giant wall. And then there's another wall, 14 feet up here past all these buildings. There's another wall. And then up here, there's another wall, as if one wall wasn't big enough to keep the Gentiles out. And on that first wall, the Jews would post a sign and said, if you are a Gentile and you cross this wall, you are dead. 
And this is what Jesus did. When Jesus died on the cross, inside of this holy place, there was a giant curtain that separated the people from the Ark of the Covenant. The Spirit of God rested in that place. And when he died on the cross, the curtain split in half. He said, there's no more walls. There's no more separation between God and man. Through Jesus... Now, we are a new humanity that can approach confidently and with power the throne of God. So how does Jesus heal a divided church? How do we heal a divided church? In order to to bring together any two people that are divided, it takes someone they both love. Jesus was the one that they both loved. That's how you heal hostility. You make them both one through someone they both adore. This becomes the strongest defining reality. All other distinctions in my life submit to my sonship, whether I'm a Republican or a liberal, whether I'm pro-life or pro-choice, whether I'm gay or straight. They submit to my sonship. And you come into this room first to belong, to be a part of the body. And when you know Christ, you can come to know Christ with all of your background. Every single one of us has a background in sin. We're experts at it, actually. Really good at it. But when you come to Christ, you receive a Christness. You receive a title of son or daughter. And through that, through that salvation that is given to you, you work together to Christ-likeness. Sorry. I'm getting fired up here, right? You work together to Christ-likeness. Your sonship or your daughtership is first. Everything else will then be worked out as you become more and more a part of God's masterpiece. Somehow I think that we uh, come to the, we take our distinctions and separate and use our spiritual elitism to separate us from those that think differently than we do. And you got to figure this out first before you can come to the table. You don't. You don't have to figure it out first. He says, come to the table. And at the table, we'll have conversation. At the table, we'll work to figure out what it means to be more Christ-like. Now, in Christ, we work out the distinctions, but first we come to the table. Lastly, when we all come to the, te- the, the table together, and I'll wrap it up here, he says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The image of the temple um, really had me thinking, what walls do we have put up? What walls have we put up where we are not allowed to walk hand in hand with someone from here 
into the Holy of Holies? What signs have you posted on the wall that separate you and say, you can't go in here, you're not welcome? I'm going to challenge you to think introspectively. What is it in my life that will make us look more beautiful, more like the masterpiece that God has created us to be? Sam, how'd that puzzle come out? (laughs) It's okay. It's an illustration. And I want you guys to look at it. We'll work on it. We'll get it all fixed up. But I want you guys to see how unique each piece is. Each one of us has different things that we hold strongly to. And so when we bring them all together, it really creates this beautiful mosaic of a church. Uh, Worship team, you guys can come on up. Um, We're going to pray for Dave, too. He's not feeling well, so he's not singing with us. Um, And then we can, let's approach the Holy of Holies together. No matter what side of the line that you are sitting on, no matter what side of the aisle you are sitting on, we can come together and approach the Holy of Holies, the throne room of God, a God who sits enthroned in power with love and justice. God, we approach you, our hearts bowed before you as your masterpiece. We approach you, God. We together, hand in hand with a brother and a sister this morning, approach you, the holy and mighty God of the universe. And we kneel our hearts before you. We bow our hearts before you to submit to your kingdom, to submit to your kingship. God, I pray that we would be faithful, obedient sons and daughters. God, I pray that our distinction in this world would be one of love, one of kindness, one of acceptance, one who brings people in to sit at the table with us that we might become more Christ-like in our journeys together. God, you are good. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's worship.